Hey there, it's Tusker, and welcome to Beats and Risers, the podcast where I speak with electronic music producers to learn about their creative approach, workflow, and production techniques with the goal of inspiring and motivating you to make more and better music. This is episode number two, and today my guest is Sixth Street. He's a music producer, DJ, choreographer, dancer, and producer Dojo Sensei. His EP, Neon District, came out in April 2019 on the Producer Dojo label and hit number one on the Beatport Trap and Future Bass chart, number two on the Dubstep chart, and went top ten in Electronica and Downtempo. Each of those genres are landmarks in the Neon District, and the EP really takes you on a musical journey through emotions and melodies. He's also collaborated with fellow dojo sensei Daniel Simmons on a single called Back in Love, which was released in August of 2019 and will be releasing remixes very soon. And he's also a streamer on Twitch. Twice a week, the 6th Street fam meets up on Twitch for music roasts and feedback. And it's amazing the community that he's built in not even a year's time. So in today's conversation, we talk about building that online community through Twitch live streaming. We also talk about creating music that evokes an emotional response and finding the elements that spark the making of a full track and lots, lots more. So here it is, my conversation with Sixth Street on Beats and Risers. Sixth Street, welcome to Beats and Risers. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. We've got a lot of stuff to cover. You've had some recent music releases. I want to talk about your Twitch streaming as well and being a mentor in the producer dojo. But to start things off, you're originally from Minnesota. You're now based in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. How long have you been living in LA for? I have been in LA for about 10 years now. So I moved out here originally for um, undergrad and I came to, I went to school at USC starting in 2009. And originally I was studying human biology with the intention to go to medical school. So I finished those four years at USC, but during my time at USC, I fell in love with dance. Um, so once I graduated, I became a professional dancer and no longer a, a med student. So things really shifted for me. And then I, I shifted gears again a couple of years ago and music kind of came into my life. So it's been a 10 year journey here in LA. I understand that the name Sixth Street has a particular significance to being in Los Angeles. Tell me a little bit about the name and what that means to you. Sixth Street actually, for me, has a lot of just memories for me in LA. Sixth Street used to be the place where I used to like drop off uh, my friends for work. I used to work on Sixth Street at a restaurant for five or six years. Um, so it was a lot of different experiences around Sixth Street. And I also just liked the way it rolled off the tongue. And also I was thinking down the line for marketing reasons as well. When you look at a festival flyer, which is kind of my ultimate goal with music, um, you always see the numbers and the A's first. So I was kind of thinking way down the line. And I'm like, if I want to start playing festivals, I would love for people to see my name on the first row. So I picked a name that had the number six in it to be in the first row on festival flyers. But originally the idea was from all the memories that I had on Sixth Street and uh, from working there for so long. Your EP is called Neon District as well. And I'm wondering if you can speak to how that theme of place ties into your music that you make. When I imagined Sixth Street in the first place, I, I didn't really realize kind of the branding that would come behind that. I was just kind of picking a name that kind of felt right to me originally. I mean, I have been producing for about two years now. So when I picked the name, I was just kind of committing to something and running with it. But a lot of the stuff behind Neon District kind of evolved over 
the time that I was growing as a producer. So as I was growing, I started to kind of find my sound a little bit more and started to really enjoy these like world building sort of huge synth kind of sounds. And Sixth Street almost became kind of this futuristic kind of world that I started to imagine the music to fill. So Neon District for me is just a little piece of Sixth Street. And um, what's cool about like this city that is Sixth Street is that there's so many different areas of it and um, every area has a different vibe, has a different flavor to it. And when Neon District came to mind as an EP title, it just kind of fit the vibe of the four songs that I had created. So yeah, like the brand of Sixth Street has just evolved so much over the past two years. You really get that sense, as you mentioned, the different vibes from each of the tracks that are on Neon District. They all have this very distinct sound to them. Tell us a little bit about the process of how Neon District came together. Well, Neon District, a lot of it actually came through because they were songs that I wrote for the producer Dojo Mixtapes. And a lot of the songs, um, they were kind of written without the intention of being released as an EP together. But um, as I look back over the songs that I had released through the mixtapes to the dojo, um, I realized that these four songs I had not released yet and just fit really well together, almost as like a reflection of the growth that I've had as a producer because they're such different songs. So uh, when the time came where people were submitting for mixtapes, I saw these four songs. And I'm like, this feels like a cohesive EP and it feels like a really great reflection of me as a producer. So um yeah, that's how it came to be. Neon District literally just popped in my head. I was walking around one day and all of a sudden, this I just imagined the, the cover in my mind. And then I also just saw the title in my head. And I'm like, that just feels right for the EP. Beyond that, it, it's like something I'm just really, really proud of to reflect the growth I've had as a producer. What sparked your initial love of music? For me, I've been playing music for a long time. I mean, so when I was really young, my parents actually put me in piano classes. And it was something that at the time I... I dreaded going to class, but I like playing the piano, if you understand, <laughs> you know, it's one of the things that I love to do, but um, going to classes and kind of doing the homework for a piano really kind of turned me off to it. But I played piano for years and years and years. And then when it came to middle school, we had the choice to join band and I joined and I picked up the trombone in there. So it's kind of a random instrument that I learned how to play back in the day. And then while I was playing trombone in band, all the cool kids were playing percussion. So I wanted to switch over to play percussion and drums because I was like wanted to be part of the cool kids. So I switched over to drums and then learned how to play drum kit, how to play snare. So I was kind of like a jack of all trades growing up and I loved music growing up. And I think now looking back, even though I've been producing for two years, I think my life has always been a, a musical life and all those skills have kind of funneled into uh, my production. Tell me about the transition between music as as something you did for fun or some something that you enjoyed doing but wasn't necessarily a career to the time when you decided to get really serious with music production. It's kind of a funny story. So production for me, it started two years ago. Um, a couple of my friends, I saw some of my friends uh, working on some beats on Ableton. There were some dancer friends of mine. And I didn't realize that making music could be such an accessible thing. So when I had upgraded to a new MacBook Pro, I just downloaded Ableton and started messing around with making beats. And then once I created my first beat, I remember the feeling that just like this feeling of being like a kid again, you know, feeling like, oh, this is such a cool creation. I was like part of this process and I'm really proud of this beat. That feeling is something that I never want to lose. And that's kind of the feeling that got me hooked. And I would love to have a life that continue, continues to feel creative and to keep making music or just keep being creative with my life, you know? So I think it was that, that moment where I felt that um, spark of being a kid again. I just wanted a life that was always creative and always musical. And you're also a mentor with Producer Dojo. Mm -hmm. How did you find the dojo? 
the dojo actually so after the first year of production um, i was kind of learning on my own i was learning from youtube videos and sort of trying to figure out what to learn. Um, I also was part of a school called the cymatics.fm, which is kind of, it was sort of an online school. Um, they had some live streams, but what really helped me in that course in the first year of my production was their start to finish courses. Um, just seeing how some people started their tracks, like built chords and finished a track and did some like quick and dirty mastering. But that was about a year in and I started to feel like I just didn't know what I didn't know. And I was trying to figure out like I wanted to upgrade my production and I knew I wasn't there yet. I had I was just on Facebook and I stumbled into a group called the Producer Dojo and a lot of people there seemed really passionate about music and they kept talking about like cool plugins and stuff. And I was just in the Facebook group to talk about music. And then I saw that this guy named Ill Gates, who I had not heard of at the time, actually, but this guy named Ill Gates was um, hosting a weekly download thing or this class of 808 thing. I didn't really know what it was, but it was about a year in into my production where I was itching to learn more. And then I heard a bunch of people in the Facebook group talking about um, this class of 808. And then I started to do a little more research and ask some of the people who are in the class of 808 if it was worth it. And it's a bit expensive. It's $1,000 for a year, but... I asked some people who are in it and they said it was absolutely worth every single penny. So I took the jump about a year ago and now I here I am a year later and the class of 808 has completely changed my production life. That's amazing. And in what ways has the class of 808 really accelerated your production, would you say? Outside of all of the lessons, like highly technical lessons that Dylan, who is Ill Gates, gives on like a weekly basis... But I think the biggest thing for me was the one-on-one lessons where I linked up with a lot of really great producers who this is the first time I, I could like ship my project file and Dropbox it to another person and for them to open it up on their end to see the different mistakes that you're making or um, different tips within my project in the context of my own project and my own music, how I can improve. So I think that for me, the one-on-one lessons where they're digging into my project and finding all the mistakes that really helped level me up. Describe for me now being on the other side as a mentor, some of the things that you see with students that come to you for production advice and to give feedback on their tracks. Originally, when I first started, I remember feeling so nervous, that, like almost feeling like, oh, am I even qualified to do this? Um, yes, I know some things about music, but still, when I look at the like the vast web of knowledge that's out there for music, I don't know that much. But I think it's cool to know that the experiences that I've gained um, and the ways that I've grown, I'm able to give that back to the community. And it's almost like when you teach it, you realize that you know a lot more than you actually think you do, you know? Um, But I think one of the biggest things is uh, in the dojo, a lot of people don't typically work with vocals. And I think I'm one of the uh, few mentors that um, works almost exclusively with vocals in every single track. So that's been one thing that people have been asking me a lot about is how to process vocals to make them sound um, polished and professional and to really sit on top of a mix. What's the number one piece of advice that you would give to a producer who is working with vocals in terms of how to properly produce and process uh, vocals for an electronic track? I'd say the biggest thing is uh, your recording area. If you have a room that's not um, properly isolated, the reflections kind of make it sound like it's recorded in a not professional environment. So that's a big one. I think secondly, as well, using a, a bunch of different layers to, well, there's two, two things I'd say. One of them is EQing the spots that really like sound rough, depending on your recording environment. So um, there are always some like reflections or whatever happening in the room that you're recording that could cause boxy frequencies or harshness or anything. So get rid of that first before you do any sort of processing on it. And then really, really utilizing the stereo field to put in layers and B takes and C takes and um, ad libs just to give that vocal a lot more depth um, outside of just that mono channel down the center. 
who are three artists that inspire you and how would you say they've influenced the music that you make? So originally, one of the people that got me into electric, uh, electronic music as a whole um, is Porter Robinson. And I think Porter Robinson uh, really inspired me because of his ability to create another world with his music it's not even like all his music has vocals in it it's just written in a way that feels very relatable and very innocent and kind of takes you to another place another artist i really love is alinium and i think for him it's the the notes and the melodies and the chords and the lyrics that he chooses that for me when i discovered alinium that changed my life and then i think lastly seven lions is kind of a combination of both um, his ability to paint worlds with his music is something that i want to attain with my music as well And you mentioned earlier on in the show that you're also a professional dancer. And I'm wondering if you can elaborate a little bit on how your background as a dancer influences the music you make or how that's also helped you to better produce tracks for the dance floor. I think being a dancer, you're really in tune with how music makes you feel in your body. I don't necessarily feel it in a tangible way how it affects my music, but I think it really bleeds into my music a lot more than I think it does. Um, like the ability to choreograph and the ability to listen deeply to music. Um, even before I was creating music, I think all of that is actually the intangible stuff that really helps my music groove more. And like, I can kind of feel when a fill needs to happen and I know how the feel should, how the fill should feel, uh, before I actually write it. Um, so stuff like that, where it's just understanding rhythm, understanding how people might be grooving to your song. And you can, you can kind of feel when something isn't working too. You might have a, a beat that's going, you're like, this isn't, knocking this isn't making me want to dance um, and i'm able to cut those things off quicker because i know it's not moving me you know it's not like i'm standing in my studio dancing to my tracks all the time but i think it's this internal groove that i've kind of developed through being a dancer that really bleeds into all my music just having that sort of sixth sense knowing whether or not this is actually going to uh make people want to move or not yes exactly that and i think that sixth sense has been really helpful oh i sixth sense sixth street i like that there we go (laughs) it all comes together it all comes together full circle right now (laughs) yeah no it's been crazy actually i think that i couldn't actually put my finger on exactly what it is but i think it really is understanding of music and um, like how melody should sound and how Phil should feel that all really kind of bleeds into all of my music and music being feeling as well. Right. Yes. That's the, that's the core of it. So if you're not feeling anything, whether it's, whether it's emotion or whether it's the desire to dance, if you're not feeling anything, then maybe it's back to the drawing board. Yeah. And I think that's what it is, is I think a lot of producers when they first start forget that, or I think a lot of producers, they, they want to grow as fast as possible. Um, but they come at it with the mentality of trying to impress people versus I think oftentimes simpler music that causes you to feel something is a lot more impactful. And I think that's something that I really kind of tap into with all my music is, is this song making me feel something? Because if that's true, and I think that has been true of my life as a dancer, it's just, it's just in my body, you know? But if that's true, then it doesn't have to be overly impressive to hook people. As long as it makes them feel something, if it's the right notes, if it's the right lyrics, you don't have to do that much to make it powerful. When you sit down at your DAW, what is the first thing that you'll typically do to get started on a project? For me, it's drawing chords. Um, I have in my DAW, in my in my normal template, I have maybe 10 piano rolls with on several channels just pulled up. The first thing I might do is just start to draw chords. Often I'll have a, a reference song um, that has an emotion or kind of the tempo that I'm kind of going for as as just a shooting point, as a starting shooting point. Um, I might change the key. I might stay in the same key. It depends. But often I'll have a reference song that I 
that I really love just kind of sitting there on the side so I can keep going back to it. But then with that reference song or without, I'll start drawing chords. And once I have a really compelling chord progression, then I know the rest of the song basically writes itself because then I can take those bottom notes of that chord, turn those into subs, and I can turn um, maybe sub, like maybe the top layers into like a really pretty airy pad or something like that. Um, but once I have a chord progression that sells, I'll start to write harmonies and other melodies um, and all these other counterparts that start to come to mind once you have a bed of harmonics that work, you know? Um, so it really starts with the pianos for me and the melodic content of the song. That's cool. So it's like a snowball effect where the chords feed the bass, which then feeds maybe the the rhythm or the beat, and then it just kind of goes from there. Yeah, for me, it's largely chords. If I could, like, I would even love to write orchestral music with no drums or even anything like that. Like, as long as the notes are there and the right elements are kind of rolling in and out and it's kind of taking you on this journey, that kind of music is totally up my alley. So from there, once you have sort of that first phase of a track, that's that rough draft done, what are the next steps that you go through to get a song finished? I think for me, once I get a compelling idea or the face of the track down or the chords of the track down, um, once I get that spark of a song that just works and things start to really flow, it's it's just creating different elements, creating the lyrics, it's getting those drums right. It's kind of, at that point, a mixture of creating the elements as well as mixing the elements. And it kind of becomes this big like you said, snowball effect into me hearing the finished product and I have to get to that point before I'm done. Um, So once I get in that zone, I feel like I'm in a cave for three days mentally, three or four days mentally. And then that song has to get finished until I feel like I'm out of that cave, you know? Like I'll start on Monday and that spark will happen and all of a sudden I'll find it's Thursday and I'll walk out with the song and I'm like, what in the world just happened in those like three or four days, you know? But yeah, for me, that's that's it. As long as I have that spark and I can see the finished product, everything else is mixing it down, getting the elements to sit with each other, just, yeah, making sure things have their own space and they're not uh, fighting with each other within the mix. And then it's just getting that thing to sound really tight. And I think for me, the mixing process is really the polishing process for me and that takes the majority of my time. What's a strategy that you have for, you know, if you're finding that you end up getting stuck in some way or you find yourself losing focus? There's two things. I think for one, having that reference song pulled out to the side is really nice because I can um, listen to, say if it's fills, I don't know what to do for a fill. Um, I can reference a song and see what ideas that the other producer used as a fill and then try to recreate my own fill that's similar to that. Um, I think having something like that just to go back and forth with is kind of really helps with uh, writer's block. Uh, I think secondly, if it's a much bigger kind of writer's block and I'm really trying to wrestle the track into place and that spark just isn't there for the entire track, sometimes maybe the idea just ran itself into the ground and that's okay. I think that's part of the process of writing music as well as you write a lot of bad songs before you can write good songs as well. And sometimes maybe the the loops you picked or like the the drums you wrote just weren't compelling enough or maybe the... I don't know, maybe the chords you wrote weren't compelling enough and that's okay. Just scrap it and start over on a new track. That's okay. A big part of the dojo is just getting a lot of music or a lot of timer beats done and finding that quality through the quantity that you produce. Tell me about a time where you produced a track under some kind of a constraint, whether it's time, whether it's the BPM and key, whether it was for one of the producer dojo ciphers, and how that song then turned out. I think the one that comes to mind is actually for a mixtape they called Say My Name, which is a mixtape that was about 
uh, putting your brand out there and putting out the vibe of your brand or having your name in there in some way. So um, for me, I, I imagine creating a opener for my show. Um, I thought that that would really encapsulate what Six Street was as a brand and like the tone and the feel of the show. Um, so the deadline for this mixtape I discovered was actually in like maybe three days from when I read about it. So I was in a real time crunch to get a completed song done within three days. So uh, with that, I just jumped in. I, I wasn't even sure if I, I was almost going to skip the mixtape. I was almost I almost threw the towel and said, I, there's no way I can get a song done in three days. I'm just going to skip this mixtape. But uh, the next day I found myself sitting in the DAW and I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to try it. Screw it. Let's just go for it and see what happens and see how fast I can write this thing. So three days, I think with a time constraint and that's to get the whole thing mixed down and decently mastered yourself just to get it out um, for the cipher we call it the mixtape cipher as well i think with a time constraint you don't have time to second guess yourself and you choose the best decisions and you just run with it and you commit to it and you just have to keep going and i think that actually really helps in a lot of ways because i think a lot of writer writers block blocks that um, producers face are actually self-inflicted where it's too many choices or Wow, I can't like I can't decide what the best drums are. So they'll spend three days on the snare um, versus writing an entire track in three days. You know, so I think that stuff like that, where you have a, a deadline in mind, actually helps you make choices faster. And that song ended up turning into one of my favorite songs I've written for Sixth Street. Um, it, it just really captured the, this festival vibe. It was um, very uplifting, and it was largely due because there was due to the fact that there was a um, time restraint of three days to finish that song. That's amazing. And I didn't know the story behind that. That's so that's incredible. You heard the song? Yeah. Welcome to Sixth Street. Like that really captures the it captures perfectly the kind of sound that you have. There's those orchestral elements. There's that future bass drop. Like, yeah, it's all, in, you know, perfectly summarized in that package. So that's that's amazing that, you know, that was all a three day turnaround for you. Yeah, there was a deadline coming and I'm like, I almost skipped it. But I told myself, let's just give myself a challenge, just go for it. And if I, and for my girlfriend, she says that's my favorite song I've ever written. And I almost never wrote that song, you know? So I think the timer beats really, it kind of captures that idea. Giving yourself a deadline for decisions makes yourself work faster. Um, and that's important. That's an important quality to have as a producer. I actually think one of the best things a newer producer can do is to watch start to finish courses. In the dojo, we have these recipes, which is kind of a similar thing. Um, four different recipes where it's like different ways to start a track, but it always takes you through the whole writing process. Um, I think for a newer producer who doesn't have too much music theory, it can be really overwhelming to think about what I need to finish this song. They might not have the framework to think about subs or kicks and snares or like high end or mid bases, like all these different like terminology craziness that could be overwhelming. So I think just understanding what needs to be in a song for a song to feel complete. I think that's really important to see the big picture. I think a lot of producers will kind of be in serum or be in some synth and just do crazy sound design stuff and like make the coolest, craziest, wonkiest sounds, but not know how to arrange them into a proper song. But I think arrangement is actually what makes you a producer, not just sound design, you know, unless you're a sample maker, just making sounds. So understanding the bigger picture in terms of what makes a song a song compositionally, that's, a huge benefit um, for any producer. And I think once you see someone actually go through the process, you start to see patterns and then you can take that and apply that to your own workflow and find what works for you to, you know, it makes the difference between completing tracks and just like, oh, I made a cool loop or I made a cool set of sounds. 
Yes, that's right. The ability to take a, a an idea to a completed song, I think that's the most important job for a producer. Um, sound design is a huge skill within that, but that's, to me, a secondary skill to just arrangement and composition. Those two things for me are like top tier as to what makes a producer a producer. What's been one of the best investments you've made? And it could be either uh, it could be gear, it could be a plugin, or it could be an experience. Tell me what has been one of the best investments you've made in terms of your music production and growth as a producer? Honestly, it's got to be the producer dojo in the class of 808. <laughs> I didn't even realize how big of a deal it was until a year after I joined. And I like all the connections and friends that I made and all the things that I've learned and just, I don't know, awareness of the music industry that I never had before. That's all because of the class of 808. When you look at the music industry, it can be such a daunting big and scary thing. But when you have someone like Dylan, who's in the industry, um, who's able to sort of demystify it for you and explain it to um, his students, that for me is knowledge that is like, you can't find that on the internet. You need someone who's actually in the industry to be able to teach you that, you know? So the class of eight away for me, like putting down the money for that for a year membership completely changed my music career. The dojo has so much to offer in terms of content, but I really think that, you know, you touched on this is that element of community. You can't, that can't be understated because it's such an amazing, positive community of, of people that are just, you know, wanting to lift each other up and help each other grow. And I think that's something that's really special about, about the dojo. Yeah. And what cannot be understated as well? I think, when we think about entertainment, it is a community career. Um, it's a relationship career. And um, that's one thing I learned about dance as well. It's not necessarily the person who is the best dancer that gets the job. It's the person that uh, people want to work with and people that you're friends with that will book you for the job. I mean, what I realized with the dojo is that it's a lot of passionate people about music that um, you become friends with. And before you know it, someone's hitting you up because they want you to open for them. You know, um, Dylan hit me up to open for his show in LA a couple of weeks ago. And that blew my mind. I couldn't do it because I'm not a very good DJ yet. Uh, but I was like, what, what the heck? Like I could have only gotten that gig if I was in the dojo in the first place. So um, these relationships that you build in the dojo, I think are one of the most valuable things that you can gain from it. Tell me a little bit about going from music production to also DJing and how that journey is going for you. For me, my main focus for the past two years has largely been production. And um, I was actually invited by a, a couple of my friends who are also who are DJs actually here in LA to play a warehouse party, uh, maybe like four, five months ago. Uh, and I, when they invited me, I couldn't turn it down. For me, my one of my goals this year was to play a live show. Um, so I said yes to it, and I got myself a DDJ 1000 Pioneer set up and then um, spent two weeks, two solid full weeks before the show, just learning how to transition songs and just how to DJ. I had the whole set list prepped out and everything. I, I, I just couldn't. I didn't have the library to just jump around. I want to make sure the set was perfect. What I realized was my passion is is largely in making the music and DJing for me is more of a means to share my music rather than to just DJ club parties, I guess. Um, I think they're, they're very, very different skill sets. Uh, the, the ability to be able to read a crowd and to think on your feet and DJ quickly and to be comfortable up on stage, that's all a different skill set than being a music producer is. And as a producer, you have to learn how to tap into that other skill set in order to perform live. So for me, I've kind of took a break on learning how to DJ because I still want to polish up my sound. I'm still developing new songs and um, I'm just in Ableton all the time. Um, if another huge gig comes up, that's when I pull out 
my controller again. That's when I start practicing because my main passion is really writing music. But in that way, I think as well, having that background, you know, having actually been behind the turntables and having that performance experience, I think also can can help inform your own productions and also how everything can tie together as a set, kind of making that into a journey. Yes, I definitely think so. And knowing how to produce for DJs, once you DJ, you realize that you really do need a nice intro and outro just to be able to transition nicely, you know? But I, I think the experiences that I gained or yeah, the experience I gained from performing live was really, really huge for me. And I'm looking forward to performing live again. I just realized that the skill set of producing music is a very different skill set than performing music. And that's not even to say the ability to have energy on stage, the ability to connect with an audience. Those are all kind of soft skills that come with DJing that you have to learn once you start DJing. Tell me about a particular spark that you had uh, for a track that you had to take and just run with and how that turned out. So there's a track on my EP called Neon District called This Type of Monday. Um, this Type of Monday is the last track on the EP. And it's I think that that song really captures the most what I see Sixth Street is as a like long-term brand. It's a very kind of nostalgic, really deep, really thick kind of song. Makes you think about life and memories and stuff. That song, uh, Mitch Brady, who was one of my first mentors in the dojo, um, I had a one-on-one lesson with him, and he, we were just going through. I, I remember seeing in his like samples this one sample called "This Type of Monday," and I was just curious, and I'm like, "Hey, what's that sample just sitting over there? Like, what is it?" And then he played it, and it was this like sort of pluck, almost like a string pluck pattern. And if you start playing the song, it's the first loop that goes right away. Um, and it immediately just evokes this kind of emotional response. And he played it and he said that he created that loop a long time ago, just this melodic pluck loop. And he didn't know what to do with it. It's been sitting there for years. And then I heard it and I just had this like huge emotional, emotional response to it. And I was like, I begged him, Mitch, you guys send this over to me, man. Like, let me work on this track or let me, I can, I can hear the track that's happening behind that. Like, please send that over. And this is a, a loop that he created years ago. So he sent it over and like I remember I, I was playing with the loop and like kind of toying with the creative process. And then I went to the bathroom. I was sitting on the toilet. All of a sudden the beat came to mind and everything started <laughs> going and like literally everything. I was just sitting on the toilet and all of a sudden I'm like, holy crap, I can feel the song, I can hear the bass and like the kind of the wonkiness of it and like the off tempo-ness, like everything has swung pretty deeply. But that entire beat with all the swing happened when I was just sitting on the toilet. And I'm like, I got, I have to get this into the DAW and I record it into my phone with my mouth. And then that that was it. I remember the moment where that spark happened. And in my head, I was just like, I had to get this into music, get it into Ableton because I could hear it happening in my head. So yeah, that's that was kind of one spark that led to another spark. But that's kind of how that song came out. It was just, that, was, that one felt like a very natural song because everything just kind of fell into place perfectly. I think that speaks to something that other producers can take away from that is even if you come up with a loop and the rest of the song is not happening, hang on to those loops because you never know if a fresh perspective might be able to uh, to make that into something someday. Yes, yes, 100%. If Mitch had thrown away that loop, then that song would have never been born. And I think he had said that either the project got corrupted or something and that was the last thing he could find from it or he just built a loop and couldn't think of anything for it. I forgot how it happened, but it was just a loop in his computer and then that was a spark for a whole song. 
Hey, I hope you're enjoying this conversation with 6th Street and I. If you are, I'd really appreciate it if you could leave a written review for Beats and Risers on Apple Podcasts. Making this podcast has been a lot of fun. It's really motivated me to create more music, and I'd love to help inspire more producers and songwriters through this podcast. Especially with this podcast being new, reviews on Apple Podcasts are a really great way to help build some momentum for the show. So if you're enjoying the conversation so far, please take a minute, head on over to Apple Podcasts, search for Beats and Risers, and leave a review. Thank you so much, everyone. And now back to my conversation with Sixth Street. What would you say is a unusual habit or an unorthodox technique in terms of your productions that you use in a production workflow? Is there something that you do that kind of falls against the grain compared to maybe the conventional way of producing? The first thing that comes to mind is that I... (laughs) <laughs> this might not be unconventional because this is probably pretty common among producers. I'm pretty unorganized in my DAW. <laughs> I think when I see when I see a lot of the producers in the dojo, or if I see like the sensei's project files, they're like really, really nicely like folded away into groups. And yeah, they're like you have maybe like six groups. You know, you have percussion, snare, kick, mid bass, sub, synths, like something like that, and vocals. Um, but for my projects they look crazy and i think that's just something that i have a i have a problem with like getting stuff into groups and like committing to decisions sometimes which is actually holding me back i understand that um but so in some ways when i open a project where and i know where everything is it just kind of clicks for me so that's something that i want to keep improving on but it's been working for me so it's a, it's a bit unconventional but i also think that's probably pretty common too among producers i can relate to that yeah um <laughs> i think the the difference maybe is that i will start very organized because I'll do all of my organizing in my prep session. Mm. But does it stay organized when I finally go through it? No, because I'm just, uh, you know, I've got to get stuff in and it just happens to go wherever. And then by the end of it, I've got all my perfectly labeled channels become audio 14 yes. and instrument track 17. <laughs> like MIDI track 71, like random stuff all over the place. Like for me, we have an idea. I'm like, I hit command T, get a new track down, command like shift T and just get that idea down as fast as I can. And they all sort of live next to each other, but they're not in groups. So I totally, I totally understand that. As long as the chaos is organized, right? Yeah, somewhere in my mind, it makes sense. It is a problem, though, when I open up an old project like from a year ago, and I'm like, that was bad. Now I'm, I just like shot myself in the foot. Um, but for the most part, it works. If I'm like current, if that, if that project is still current in my mind, the chaos is still somewhat in my mind, too, so it works out. Is there a time on your journey as a producer where you've experienced a setback? And if so, what, what setback was that? And how did that set you up for further success down the road? In terms of like musical setback, there's something that really comes to mind because I think like I imagine I hear about people's hard drives failing and melting down or like someone's laptop implodes or something. Luckily that hasn't happened yet. And I highly recommend backing up your computer, your hard drive in two different locations, by the way, for all the producers out there, get it onto another hard drive and get it into a cloud just for your own sake. But I think that one of the biggest setbacks for me in my musical journey so far has actually been an emotional one. I really got into music production largely because I was going through a really, really tough breakup at at the time. Um, This was two years ago uh, when I started producing. And 
no, the breakup was ha- it happened after I started producing. And for me, um, emotionally, I remember it was just it was really hard to get out of bed, and it was um, kind of it was I was sad, and I couldn't do anything but just sit in front of Ableton. That was the only productive thing I could do was to just create music and just write sad stuff, you know. And I think that actually really helped my production because that like was an escape for me, and it was uh, kind of a healing process for me to be able to write um, the songs, I guess, or the emotions that were kind of in my heart. Um, so the setback was more of an emotional one, and music really grew a lot um, because of that setback. From there, you're able to take that. You know, once you're a happier person, then you're able to channel those emotions into your music and, you know, look at the stuff that you've made since then. Yeah, that's right. At the time when I was writing through that breakup, it wasn't even about trying to be a good producer or wasn't even trying to like do any techniques. It was just kind of writing because it was feeling, I was feeling something, you know? Um, And I think that's actually, there's a purity to that, that I never want to lose in writing music. I never want to write to just impress, or I never want to write um, just to move ahead in my career, but I never want to lose that sort of innocent connection to just writing for the sake of feeling, you know? Let's talk a little bit about Twitch and the community that you've built there. Yeah. Um, so you stream, I believe it's twice a week? Yep, twice a week. That's right. At twitch.tv slash Sixth Street Music. Mm-hmm. And you do what you call track roast, so <laughs> which is not like a roast in the comedic sense. Which is what I when I first saw when I first saw the the description of that, I was like, oh, like what does he mean by roast exactly? Yeah, <laughs> but uh, it's yeah. more of I guess like sitting around a campfire, just chilling kind of roast. You know, like everyone's yeah contributing their tracks. And one thing that really stuck out to me watching the streams is how you know you're you're really building your own community there of really supportive producers everyone's you know cheering each other on and providing really constructive feedback there's so much positivity in the community yeah can you speak to uh, to how the sixth street fam has you know how you got started with that and how that community has evolved over time yeah uh you, you did your research that's awesome man but you know it's called the sixth street fam you hung out for a stream yeah that's awesome um yeah for me honestly twitch streaming started as I, I I just heard about Twitch. There was a producer um, that I follow and she does like DJ streams and um, kind of talks about music on her Twitch stream for years now. And she's been seeing a lot of success. And I was like, you know what? In January, I'm going to figure out how to stream. I'm just going to do it. I didn't really know how it was going to help me, but I was just going to like get on Twitch and just, just figure it out, you know? And as a longtime performer, like being on camera isn't that uncomfortable for me it still is a lot of energy and i have to put a lot of time into it but um i was like that's something that i can really bring to the table as a unique trait of sixth street is my personality and my performance and i want to be able to offer something to somebody you know like a newer uh, producer out there but honestly it just started because i wanted to just try it and i just threw it out there and i started streaming and i set myself a schedule just to keep myself committed to it and originally it was actually three times a week and three times a week i would show up and i would have streams where there were only three people you know and in the beginning the first month or two there's only like three to five people no one hanging out and like it wasn't really community or anything like that uh, but then over the months like people started to bring their friends and people started to really enjoy it and for me, I was really holding on to the music feedback as we call it music roast as just like a fun, as just a fun term. But um, the music feedback is a product that I could offer people. So the show wasn't just me sitting around. The show was actually me providing some sort of constructive criticism for people's music. 
and it just kind of grew from there. Like it, I never really knew what it would turn into. And I, my community is still a fairly small community, but like the, every time I log in, I always log out and sign out and feel like, wow, that was a really fun time. And there are always people there before I am, um, before I start streaming who are just chatting and just waiting for me to like jump online. And that's a crazy feeling to think that there are people around the world who are excited to link up and share their music and to get some feedback on their tracks. Um, so the Six Tree Fam is something that just started six months ago, but I think it will be around for many years to come. What kind of connections have come through as part of, you know, just resulting from people connecting together on this stream? Well, even just a couple days ago, there's this one producer that started to come to the stream maybe like a month ago. And his name is Braz Official. And um, he dropped this ridiculous dubstep drop that just blew my mind maybe a week ago. It was originally a remix to another song with like a bootleg uh, it was a bootleg remix with like some random acapella. But then he decided that he wanted to make it into his own original song because the drop was so good. And then he was asking around on my Discord community channel um, if there were any vocalists or rappers that people knew. And I got so excited for the song. I immediately contacted another one of my friends who is a rapper. And I was like, hey, you have to jump on this. And so Braz was looking for a rapper and my rapper friends looking to create more music. And I, I connected the two of them and that's up in the air now, but that, that happened because of the stream, you know? Um, and I think it's just exactly that. Um, this game is a relationship game. And if you make relationships with people in real life or over the internet, these are all real producers and like anything can happen from these connections, you know? You like you never know if like someone might be watching that's a festival curator in another country and they like my music or they like my personality and they're like, hey, Richie, why don't you come on over and play this festival? And then like you never know what could happen, you know, but it's all relational. That's awesome. And I, I think you uh, you mentioned a really important point that you can't really especially in this day and age where we're all so connected via the Internet, you can't really make music in a vacuum anymore. You have to branch out and find some way to to make those connections with people. And I love what you're doing and how there's really a, a strong intention of of giving back. And in that way, you know, the community kind of builds itself with like minded people who also want to offer their own feedback or support. Yes. Yeah. And I also think that one of the reasons why it's funny that you mentioned um, we're so connected these days which is which is very true. But one of the reasons why I started to do uh, Twitch streaming was to become more connected with people. Um, and Twitch streaming is very vulnerable in the sense that everyone can see your reactions and your face and everything you say cannot be edited. Um, so it really is for people to get to know the person behind Sixth Street in a much deeper way than if it was just like me posting stuff on Instagram, you know? So I think that was Twitch streaming has been an attempt to connect with people on a deeper level than just making music. You know, I want them to get to know the person behind it. For sure. And that's such a cool way of doing that. Yeah. Yeah. It's always a blast. Like those two hours fly by. <laughs> and I've discovered so many cool underground artists that I'm like, dang, your music is top A level and no one's ever heard of you. But like, I hope you blow up and I knew you before you blew up, you know, like people like that. It's been so exciting to be a part of that. So at the end of our time together is a segment that I call the 808 or eight answers on eight questions. So I'm nice. asking the same questions of every single guest. Are you ready? Cool. Let's do it. All right. Question one. What book has had the most profound impact on either your music production or your creativity? I think I'm going to have to go with the weekly downloads, which is uh, by Bill Gates in the class of 808. Um, his, he has a segment 
called the ill methodology, which basically breaks down the psychology of workflow and kind of the mental blocks that we get, um, how we get in our own ways in terms of producing. And that completely changed my life in terms of how to organize my workflow and how to move forward with finishing more songs. Yes, I can totally agree with you on that. And especially the thing that I think has been so key, at least speaking for myself and my growth as a producer compared to the stuff that I was making before uh, I was in the class of 808, which was very few in number and really, really not very good, (laughs) um, is just getting over that, that mindset. Because that is such a big hurdle for uh, for a beginning producer to cross. You know, I'm I'm following all of these tutorials. Why am I not making the music that I hear on the radio? Yes. Or why am I not making it the way that it sounds in my head? You have to start with the mindset and breaking down all of those misconceptions that you have in your head as a starting producer on how music gets done because here is someone who has the production discography behind him to break all that down and tell you this is how you need to adjust if you want to create more and better music. Yes, that's right. And then once you break down those barriers and start creating just quantity, a quantity of tracks, that's how producers grow. So I think that mindset switch is such a big thing. um, And that really changed my life in the uh, class of 808. Question two, if you had to give a TED Talk on anything, but it couldn't be related to music, what would your TED Talk be about and what would we learn? I think it would largely be about uh, mental health and happiness. Um, And I think that that's something that it's easy for artists to get so caught up in their own work and derive a lot of their own identity from um, the product that, that that they create or how well received it is. Um, and especially in this day and age with social media and um, like putting ourselves out there all the time, feeling like we have to be connected all the time, but lacking vulnerability and depth in relationships. I think that's something that a lot of people could, I don't know, enrich their lives in, you know, like learn to just live life and understand life is a lot bigger than just art, you know, and life is um, something that could can and should be enjoyed. And I think art, your art will actually evolve and be a reflection of that life um, versus trying to like earn people's love with your product, you know? That's a really important point that you brought up there. And and going back to the idea that music should and the, the best music should be something that you create intrinsically. Um, because if you're just making music only to chase numbers, there's no depth or substance to it in the end and the you know you risk burning out yes whereas if you're always coming from that sort of intrinsic perspective then you always have that purpose behind what you're doing yes and i think the numbers may or may not come you know like this is a, a industry that is somewhat based on luck as well um but i think that if you're constantly like you said um internally happy with your music then the purpose is already complete and you're already a successful artist in my opinion Um, and i think that the work that i created when i was first starting production i never want to lose that innocence and that um i don't know that like childlike fun that came with it in the beginning question three do you have a favorite key and tempo to produce in and if so uh, which ones do you find yourself coming back to 
Um, tempo, I tend to say, well, no, I kind of do everything. So tempo, I sometimes will just key in at 150. Um, a lot of future base, um, melodic EDM kind of clocks in at 150. So that's kind of like my baseline. Um, in terms of key, honestly, anything at all. Like I love my majors. I love my minors. I just want a compelling chord progression. It doesn't matter what key it is for me. Question four, if you could collab with anyone that you haven't already collaborated with, which artist would you collaborate with and why? I think it would have to be Porter. <laughs> I think it'd be Porter Robinson. Um, his ability to not only create like worlds with his music, but also with his shows. Like he's he just he's created a show that's like just so memorable and so much fun and like the visuals and everything. Like he's thought about everything. So I just want to meet him and pick his brain and see what makes him work, you know? Question five. If you had to produce a track with only two VST instruments and three VST effects, which would you choose and why? My first VST instrument would be Serum because of how flexible and powerful it is. Plus, it comes with the Serum effects pack, so that's also part of the package as well. So I'll take Serum as my one. And my second, um, there's this really awesome plugin called ADSR Sample Manager, which basically turns your entire library of uh, samples and loops into a VST. So I'll take that one too. So I've access to all my all my sounds and all my synths basically with those two. In terms of three effects, uh, I would probably pick from the Waves collection, the H Reverb and H EQ, just to have um, the power to like color and process my sound. And then Guitar Rig 5 is pretty awesome too, because you can put that on any sound and there's like endless amounts of effects that you can mess around with to change your sound. So kind of an EQ, reverb, and an effects rack. Question six. How do you know when you need to finish a song versus when you're working on something and it's time to throw in the towel? What's what's the difference when you come to that fork in the road? So I think in the beginning of my writing process with the creative um, stage, if I find that spark or that face of the track that just emotionally captures me, then I know that the rest of the problem is actually just mixing it down to sound right. So that's, I mean, that at that point, it's a downward spiral, or I guess a snowball rolling downhill. It like kind of finishes itself. I did not, yeah, I was like trying to make that sound good. Um, that's a good thing. Like if you find the spark and you're just kind of stuck on mixing stuff, like that's a problem that can be solved in time. So there's no reason to throw in the to- towel there. Um, but that's assuming you found that spark. If, for example, you've worked on a song for three days and you just cannot get that like emotional spark or face to happen, then I think at that point, I would just start the track over or just move on to another song. Because I think at that point, in the creative stage, if it's not clicking, then it's hard to force that song into a position where it'll be a compelling, like fully mixed down song, you know? So I think really it starts with the creative stage and whether I can capture that spark or not. And I think it's important to see the perspective too, that even those times where it just doesn't work for whatever reason, even those contribute to something later down the road where you, you know, it's a total 180 and you love what the result is. Yes, that's right. Um, Even recently, I've been working on a song with my girlfriend and she wrote lyrics and a melody down and uh, sent that over to me. And I started, I spent a whole session writing these chords and like creating this like 808 pattern and um, just like wrestling it into place to try to fit the melody that was given to me. And then I just realized like this is not working and I'm hating this process. So I'm like, after a whole session, I'm like, you know what? 
I'm going to start over fresh slate, like same lyrics, same melody. And then I start writing new chords. And I tried different bass notes. And all of a sudden, this way, this new chord progression completely gave new life to the lyrics. And now I have a spark where I'm excited to work with that, you know? But the first time I was like, dude, this is just not working. These, like, this is not compelling at all. Question seven. In the past six months, what have you purchased for $100 or less that has had the greatest impact on your music production? Hmm, that is a good question. I haven't bought anything in a long time for my music production, to be honest. I'm trying to think about what I... Okay, so I will still stand by. I think the best purchase I ever made for a production was still in the beginning of my production um, career. It was the uh, Akai MPK Mini. That little thing for a hundred bucks is like, it's like less than a hundred at times on Amazon, but it, it can do everything that you need and more. And I have not outgrown it yet. It has eight pads, eight knobs and two octaves of keys. Like if I didn't have that guy, I would be very, very sad. So the past six months, I haven't bought anything, but I will still say that the Akai MPK Mini, like for a hundred bucks, best MIDI control you could get. Nice. And that was also uh, that was also Trap Jesus's answer to that question as well. Oh yeah. I think every every producer that starts, they like look up, somebody control it under 100 and it really is the first thing that pops up so everyone just buys it because it's there and it's pretty cheap but it's honestly made to be like a tank and it's so useful like there's there's some stuff in here i haven't even like used yet like there's an arpeggiator built into the actual midi keyboard that i've never actually used and i'm like what in the world i could just do that on my midi keyboard that's crazy and last but not least question eight if you could go back in time uh to your first six months of music production what would you tell yourself, you know, having the knowledge that you have now? Yeah, I think it would either be to watch the ill methodology earlier. I think that would have really helped a lot of my um, just like writing process early on. Um, but at the same time, I think that I was so new to production that I was just like playing around with stuff. And I think that was like how it was supposed to happen. You know, I think though, if I were to, go back and tell myself some business advice, it would be two things. Maybe one, to start an email list earlier on, and two, to learn how to sing. <laughs> those those two things, I think that uh, if I could go back and tell little Richie some things to learn, it would be those two things. Do you have plans to release more tracks with your own vocals? Yes, I would love to. And I think that's one of the biggest weaknesses that my, myself included and a lot of producers um, have is like always struggling to find a vocalist. And in my mind, I'm like, just learn how to sing. Like so many people just sit there and not like don't want to learn how to sing. And I'm like, it's fine. Like it's a skill that you can learn. It's the number one instrument that you can bring to your music. And a lot of producers are complaining that like, oh, I want my music to sound more human. And the most human instrument you can bring to the table is your voice whether it's background vocals or a like lead vocal, you know? So I, I would love to create more songs where I'm singing and it would be my voice on there. And you can't really get more unique than that. Like if you're creating music that's based on your emotions and your personality, that's the number one thing you can do to really bring that out is to, uh, you know, to actually be singing on your tracks. Yeah. And I think that beyond just like having your own personal production sound, your voice is the only voice that sounds like your voice in the entire world. And the way that you say words and the way that you convey emotion through uh, emotion through your voice. So that's something that if you want to bring, like you said, your own story and your own face to your tracks, literally your voice is one of the best things that you can use. So we're just about wrapping up here. But before we go, um, just a couple questions. 
What is one thing that you want to say to anyone listening to this podcast right now? I hope that my journey has like helped you in some way or inspired you in some way. And I, honestly, I feel very blessed and lucky to be able to uh, make music as my job and never lose the childlike fun that is the creative process um, and never let the the industry or never let the pressure of trying to move ahead crush that dream. That's what I would say to everyone listening. Hope you guys enjoyed it. And last but not least, where can people find you and your music online? You can find me just if you look up 6th Street, uh, 6th Space Street on um, Spotify or Apple Music, also on um, SoundCloud as well. And then if you want to join one of those Twitch sessions, um, I stream on Sunday and Thursday nights from 6 to 8 p.m. Pacific time. Um, If you look up 6th Street Music on Twitch, you can find me there as well. Um, if you guys are in the class of 808, um, you guys can actually book me for lessons. So that's something if you want to learn more about production with me, um, just you can contact me through Twitch and we can talk more about lessons. Perfect. Richie, Sixth Street, thank you again so much for speaking with me today. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. It was such a blast. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much to 6th Street for speaking with me. You can find all of the links to his Twitch, to his music on SoundCloud and Spotify over at fanlink.to slash 6th Street. Again, that's fanlink.to slash 6th Street. And we'll put that link in the show notes as well. You can also find him on social media at 6th Street Music on Twitter, Instagram, and SoundCloud. If you'd like to book a session and learn from 6th Street, he'll be instructing at Producer Dojo again starting in 2020. And uh, you can learn more, or if it's already 2020, you can book your lesson over at ProducerDojo.com. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe to Beats and Risers over at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Links to everything we've talked about in this episode, from plugins to producers we've mentioned, can be found in the show notes, which you can find over at beatsandrisers.com. That's beatsandrisers.com. I'd also like to give a special thanks and a shout out to Luke Rain for helping me connect with many of the guests who are appearing on the first season of Beats and Risers. Thank you, Luke. And you can follow him at Luke Rain Music or at What Would Trap Jesus Do. My name is Tusker. I've been your host and producer for the Beats and Risers podcast. And if you'd like to get the latest updates from me and about the podcast, subscribe to the Tusk List. You can find the link to subscribe on my website, which is tusker.com. And I spell it with a V. So that's T-V-S-K-E-R dot com. You can also follow me on social media at Tusker on Twitter, that's T-V-S-K-E-R, and at Tusker Music on Instagram as well. And I'd love to hear your thoughts about today's podcast as well. What was your biggest takeaway? What did you learn from today's episode with Sixth Street? Send me an email, podcast at beatsandrisers.com or at beatsandrisers on Twitter and Instagram. With that said, thank you so much for listening to Beats and Risers. Until next time, be kind to one another, go out there, and make more music.